Christian nationalism. What is it? I never had heard much about Christian nationalism or thought about it until April of 2020 when I did an interview with Catherine Stewart, the author of a book called Power Worshippers. And I certainly had never thought, and even as I listened to her, thought it was an issue of danger to our culture and our country, even though she said it was. Then January 6th happened, after a long line of other things. Now I think Christian nationalism is something we have to deal with. And Doug Paget, the executive director of Vote Common Good, is doing so. And I'm excited to get to talk to him for this podcast today. Maybe Christian nationalism makes you turn this off. Don't do it. Listen to what Doug has to say and hear why this is so important, an issue for our churches to deal with today. Before we get into the podcast, let me encourage you to join up for our nonpartisan evangelical Patreon group. It's where we get our financial support by selling subscriptions to our private group. We don't do it by donation. We do it by subscription. It's a for-profit company, and it's how we spread this message out there. So check it out. Go to my website, pastor-paul.com. Click on that Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner, or you can go directly to the site at patreon, patreon.com slash NPE podcast. That's nonpartisan evangelical NPE podcast, patreon.com slash NPE podcast. Now, to our podcast of the week with Doug Paget of Vote Common Good on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast at npepodcast.com. For those willing to listen, learn, and have eyes to see and ears to hear, this is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? Challenging the mindset of right-wing Christianity and encouraging people to have their minds renewed and hearts transformed. What knucklehead, mush-for-brains evangelical leaders are trying to, uh, to overthrow Trump? It's a special kind of dumb and calling yourself a Christian. Let's have better conversations about the life modeled in the Bible so we can truly tell the world God is not mad at you. This is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast at npepodcast.com. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Paul Swearingen, the Nonpartisan Evangelical, where we love to create unique conversations about God and the church. Glad you're with me today. And I have a great guest that I'm excited to talk to. Um, he has been around a while talking about unique ways to look at the church. And that doesn't mean you're old, Doug. I'm not saying you're old at all. <laughs> I'll take it. Long in the tooth. Yeah, Doug. Pa yeah, that, sometimes that just means you've been around for a long time. But Doug Paget is with us. He's the executive director of Vote Common Good. He's a pastor in Minneapolis, a writer, uh, and a speaker and influencer. And we're just really fortunate to talk with you today. And just back from vacation, you look tanned and relaxed today, Doug. Well, thank you. I, I spent a lot of time outdoors uh, sitting in the sun. So it was COVID safe and wonderful for the soul. So we first met Doug when he came through my home, my home of Fresno on the Vote Common Good bus, doing a tour encouraging people to vote for somebody other than Donald Trump in the presidential election. And so before we jump into this uh, letter for about Christian nationalism and some discussion around that really important topic, uh, how do you feel now that the election has come and gone? Do you feel like you guys made a difference in us having a new president here? Well, thank you. I, yeah, I do feel good about it. I think the work that we did, you know, trying to specifically ask religious people and specifically white evangelicals to make the common good their voting criteria rather than just their partisan commitments, which so many people hold very deeply without even sometimes knowing that their faith has caused them to also only vote for Republicans. Um, and so we asked them to, to think about that differently. And we knew that it mattered that those people's votes shifted in certain states. We 
paid attention to the whole country. We tried to tour the entire country. We caught 14 states short because of COVID in March, but we got to, you know, uh, 36 states. And then we spent some time in the fall in states that we thought would have the most impact on the electoral uh, college outcome. And that happened. And we actually saw the votes in certain parts of those states change to the degree that uh, Donald Trump uh, could not win re-election. Now, I was a little terrified at the reality that 74 million people still voted for the man and that many of those people were people of Christian faith and of um, evangelical background and tradition. So still a lot of work to do. And there were still an awful lot of people who felt that their faith um, would allow them or could lead them to uh, have no other option other than to vote for Donald Trump on election day. <laughs> it still That's surprises crazy. me. And, and Paul, you know, we've talked about this. We, we would often say on our tour events, we'd say, look, please don't, don't think that we're asking you to listen to us right now about who to vote for in November. Listen to yourself five years ago, right? We said this over and over to people of Christian faith, like you used to say these things mattered. You used to say that you would only vote for a candidate who, and now you don't. So what happened? Why did your commitments, why did your argument, why did it change? And so in a lot of ways, you know, I'm a political operative, right? I feel that way. I feel like I work in politics. I mean, I'm traveling around the country and ask people to engage in politics, but really, we're trying to ask people of Christian faith to let their faith drive them to the common good. And this just seems so outrageous that people are continuing to support the man. Or I would have even been happy enough if people had said to me, look, he's wrong. He's, uh, he's aggressive. He's violent. He, uh, all the things that I think were true about him. But I feel like I have to vote for him. The thing is, Paul, they didn't say that. They right. said, we love him. They said, he's done no wrong. They said, oh, the things he's done, we don't think those things are wrong anymore. Like the rationalization that went on, it wasn't just a political argument that they were having. They were having an argument about identity and who they saw themselves to be as as people of Christian faith. And that's the work that I've been trying to do my entire adult life is to help people of Christian faith be a benefit and blessing to the world for the common good. So in some ways it feels particularly political and in other ways it feels like, no, this is just pastoring the public, you know, yeah. like feeling like how do you help people live in a way that's that's uh, genuine to the faith that uh, we're called to if they're a person of Christian faith um, yeah. in, in the public sphere. Well, that's and I call this nonpartisan evangelical and people are like, you're partisan because you're always saying negative things about Trump. And I'm like, no, I'm I'm trying to call people out of that partisanship that that got them to this place. But so the election happens, we get to. January 6th. What do you think when you're watching what happened on January 6th? I I was so scared, you know, the day of the insurrection, which I hope is a day that we remember for a very long time and we call it out because it wasn't, again, just a political act. It was a day that on January 5th, the day before, was curated into place by people that led a thing called the Jericho March. It was Christian leaders that were behind the organization and the structure of it. It, We watched on the 6th as the Q Anand Shaman and others broke into the Senate dais and prayed a prayer. It's a prayer that'll be very familiar to religious people of this country, especially evangelicals. Let's all say a prayer in this sacred space. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for gracing us with this opportunity to stand up for our God-given unalienable rights. They will hear them saying we're doing this in the name of Christ. They're thanking Jesus for the authority that they're operating under as they attack our democracy. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for paying the inspiration needed to these police officers to allow us in this building, to allow us to exercise our rights, to allow us to send a message to all the tyrants, the communists, and the globalists that this is our nation, not theirs, that we will not allow the America the American way of the United States of America to go down. Thank you, divine, omniscient, This was full-on Christian nationalism. Thank 
United States of America to be reborn. Thank you for allowing us to get rid of the communists, the globalists, and the traitors within our government. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's holy name we pray. And watching that happen on the 6th, it was terrifying. I had run into that those elements all around our country for the last two and a half years as we've traveled. And seeing them come together at the nation's capital, be invited by Christian people, revved up by the president of the United States, and then unleashed on the Capitol building and on the people who served there, whether they were the security officers, the police, or the representatives and their staff, was absolutely the worst possible outcome that I thought could happen. Um, I I watched their violence all over the country. We experienced it. Um, But to see it come together in that way meant that November 3rd didn't end anything. In fact, many of those people were radicalized between Election Day on November 3rd and Insurrection Day on January 6th. So they Mm. spent those two months radicalizing. And then they spent, have spent time since then, the, the next two months, um, continuing to organize. So we have, in my view, a very dangerous, radicalized group of Christian nationalists that are willing to live lawlessly and believe that they're doing it under the blessing of what many of them call the still rightful president of the United States. And it's, it's terrifying. And then they have senators that are backing them up. Yeah. People like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and... Um, Christian senators, by the way. Yes. Amazing. Right. Like you're um, just watching people of of Christian faith leaderships uh, in leadership positions become so, so silent about these issues that, you know, if this had been a Democrat doing any of this, they wouldn't have been silent about any of it. Right. So I get it that people think folks like you and I are too partisan, but you know, (laughs) I mean, look, it's it's clearly over the bounds uh, of of partisanship uh, because Republicans have spent their lives telling you that Democrats are this, that and the other thing. And they're completely silent now when it comes to Donald Trump. And I I frankly don't understand what it is. I don't believe that Donald Trump is holding something over them. I think this is what people actually believe. I think Mm -hmm. all along they've just been um, hiding back their their true belief in these senators and Congress people and many voters. This is what they believed all along. I don't think I used to think they were in a cult or something or they were kind of swept up in a, a fever had overtaken them. And now I'm like, Oh no, this is just independence day for them. This is just the day they get to, they get to come out and shine. And that's what faces a lot of individuals and a lot of church leaders is, will you respond in this moment in a way that's going to be uh, honest about, about where we find ourselves? Do you, do you think that a guy like Ted Cruz, and I've, I've heard Ted's dad speak in churches here in Fresno before, does he believe that the end uh, of a, Christian nation of imposing Christian law justifies the means or, or do you think he's just a political animal? And I guess I can't demand you get in the head of Ted Cruz, but as we're trying to figure this out, how can a Christian justify these things or somebody that calls themselves a Christian? I, I mean, I guess it comes down to the ability that people have to perceive, you know, you think of Jesus's teaching that although they have eyes, they do not see and they have yeah. ears and they do not hear like Jesus is into a real uh, accurate teaching of what goes on to the, in the human experience with that and other end. And I pay a lot of attention to some uh, social theorists that work on the issue of perception of what people see. And in fact, there's a great video that people should look up called the invisible gorilla. And it's a social experiment that takes about a minute and a half. And people, it shows that what someone sees uh, and what they recognize are not the same thing. There's a bit of an illusion in this thing. So I think what's happening is that although they have eyes, they do not see and ears, they do not hear. And it's, it's often not what we see and ignore that's the problem. It's what we look at and never actually perceive that creates the issue. And I think guys like Ted Cruz, and I think Ted Cruz in particular, chooses to pay attention to some other things so he doesn't have to pay attention to this. And this mm. is how all of us, this is why we, some of us talk to our pastors or our friends or our therapists or our spiritual directors. We try to figure out why we live under such self-delusion. You know, I, I think it's true that human animal, humans are the only animals that actually self-harm. 
right? Like, why do we live in ways that are contrary to our own well-being? Why do we even harm ourselves? Why do we lie to ourselves? Like, what good does it do to lie to yourself? But everybody listening, we all lie to ourselves, right? This is, this is the universality that people of the Christian faith say, like, hey, we're all caught up in this game, right? We're all caught up in this common sin of struggle against ourselves. So why do we lie to ourselves? Well, that's complicated on why we do. But I think it's what's going on here. And that's why I say I, I don't think that we can apply a particular evil to the Republicans who choose to support this insurrection and all the nonsense that goes around Donald Trump. I think we have to recognize they're choosing a path of deception, self-deception. Why is that? I don't know that we're going to be able to, to ever come to a, an answer that's going to be satisfactory. Because when you ask any of us, why do we harm ourselves? Why do we live in ways that hurt our marriages or hurt our children or hurt ourselves? Like the expo when you finally get to the explanation of that, it's very unsatisfactory. Right? <laughs> so some ways what we have to do is help people to not be able to explain away why self-deception and self-harm is our choice. And I think we really do have to start thinking about some political approaches as an act of collective self-harm mm. and, oh, yeah. and, not, and not say, oh, these people have our best interests at mind. Oh, okay, granted, everyone does. But sometimes people just live in ways that are really reckless and dangerous and, and harmful. And, and ever getting an explanation to that, I mean, go, go to court sometime and watch people who plead guilty, try to explain to the judge why they did it. Right. There, there, there isn't very good reason, right? This is, this is the thing the gospel teaches you that's like, stop trying to justify yourself and repent, change, yeah. be born again, be born anew, right? This is why, I'm, this is why I consider myself an evangelical, because I like that story. I, I want us to be freed from self-harm and harming of others and all the rest of that. So I think that's what's going on. And, and that's why I think it's a, yeah. spiritual, a spiritual issue like that. So Yeah, I, I'm 100% in agreement with you. Jesus called that the leaven of the Pharisees and, and of Herod or the Sadducees. And uh, John eleven forty eight, 48, I think it is, the, the, the Pharisees are determining they're going to have to kill Jesus because if people believe in him, we're going to lose our temple and lose our country. It's exactly what Republicans are saying now. We're going to lose our religion and lose our country. It's a direct quote of the Pharisees. And and Jesus said he, he never had good things to say about those guys. And, and so I can't imagine that he would be here today saying, yes, I approve of your religious nationalism, your, your religiously yeah. entwined ideology. And I think you're right. It creates a, we might call it a mindset today. The Bible calls it a principality, perhaps. It's, mm -hmm. And it does create a blindness where you cannot see where God's heart actually is in the season. And somebody could look at Black Lives Matter sign on your on your table back there and say, well, all lives matter because we just can't see God's heart of what's happening around. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you, when we traveled the country, nothing created more tension and more negative response and dangerous response than the Black Lives Matter signs that we would put yeah. out at our public events. Man, I'm telling you, th that stuff is about this, this anti- uh, Black Lives Matter and pro-Trump thing. It's about race. And yeah. race is one of the issues that people don't know how to see and don't know how to talk about. And you put people in a powerless situation where they don't know how to talk about something. And many of us resort to other behaviors to communicate. And I'm not giving people a pass on this at all. I think they need to consider what they don't understand about Black Lives Matter, if it causes you to be angry, if it causes you to yell, if it causes you to try to drive a bus off the road, if it causes you to throw something, uh, all of these behaviors of which I have experienced, it, if, you're, if you're that triggered by this and you don't know what else to do, that should be an indicator that maybe you don't understand the context in which these things are happening, right? Mm -hmm. That um, we should not be responding None of us in any circumstance with such a level of hatred, vitriol, and, and uh, harm for another that, that comes out. That would literally lead to an insurrection. Right? Yeah. And I, it's, I mean, 
Can you imagine, Paul, if we'd sat together, yeah, I don't know, somewhere after the election or even before, and we'd said, <laughs> hey, you know what I think is going to happen? I think Trump's going to lose the election, and then I think he's going to lie to his, his supporters, and then I think millions are going to believe him, and he's going to act like he really won, and then they're going to attack the Capitol when they get inside the dais of the Senate, they're going to baptize it inside of a Christian prayer uh, that, that America has now been born again. We and, would have looked calling at for the hanging of Mike Pence. <laughs> calling for the hanging of Mike Pence. Can you imagine us what we would have said about that at the time? We, we would have said, OK, I think we've jumped. I think we've we've jumped the shark here. Right. I think we've You're gone being dramatic far. Uh, look, it's no way would that happen. Oh, it happened. Yeah. And and they're plotting again. They are they are as sure as we are sitting here. There are people having another Zoom call where they're talking about how that's the start line and not the finish line. Wow. Wow, that's that's scary. So you and some others got together and said, Hey, we have to do something about this and started crafting a letter to the church. And then you started bringing people in. I was honored to be invited to be a part of that group. And, and you guys have put together and, and a bunch of us have signed on to denouncing Christian nationalism. That's the term you're putting on it and asking pastors to start to talk to their people about it. Tell us about that process. What brought that about? So over the last two months, we've been watching uh, all of us, you know, like how are people responding? And one of the things I was becoming aware of was that the religious voices were starting to talk around and ignore the insurrection. And partly because of the trial of Trump and that was coming to an end, people were wanting to move on. And religious people really wanted to move on. They felt humiliated and embarrassed by what happened. They did what we all do, which is to minimize when you feel guilty for something. So they minimized the influence of Christianity in that moment and actually started to pivot away and somehow proclaim that they as Trump supporting Christians were the good people in this story and uh, wanted to be sure that the truth was understood about this. So we wanted to put the focus back on the Christian side that supported the insurrection. So we put together this letter, as you mentioned, and wanted evangelical leaders to sign it, specifically announcing their rejection of Christian nationalism that supported the insurrection, fueled it, activated it, and is being used to this day. Because churches are primary organizing facilities for the rally that took place on the 6th and the insurrection. And they continue to be the rallying points of a lot of the misinformation and disinformation that has come out uh, from the Trump uh, uh, camp on all this. So religious communities are essential to it. And they were being swept up in over and over by what are kind of in shorthand referred to as QAnon theories, right? A whole set of yeah. theories about what's happening in our world that are uh, untrue and, and in fact, designed to be the opposite of what's truth. So they're, they're designed to, in my view, to deceive, not just to withhold information, but to cause people to believe things that are, that are specifically untrue. So we wanted to respond to that and really wanted to name the role of Christianity in the insurrection. So we put this letter together and many people contributed to it. And something like that is really hard. So we've had 2,500 signers of evangelical leaders across the country. So far, it continues to get some good press and it's newsworthy because, you know, people still believe that Christians and evangelicals are going to support Trump and all the all the insurrectionists supporting senators. And so when a group comes out and says, here are evangelical leaders from across the spectrum of of you know, progressive to conservative uh, theologically um, that that have agreed to that the state that to the statement that this is a problem that's newsworthy, and but putting a letter like that together, it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard, man. Uh, there are so there are reasons why the Christian community doesn't speak with one voice. Yeah. So if people have ever felt frustrated by the fact there's so many denominations or so many differences that it's that it feels like there's so much bickering and separating inside of Christianity, um, I hear you, man. There is just a lot of factors, some that have very little credibility to them, and some that are incredibly important. And separating out the two is really hard. It's it's like Jesus who says, you know. 
you don't want to try to set, separate the the wheat from the tares if you rip them all. Like sometimes pulling that apart, you can't. Don't do that. Just recognize that it's complicated. So there's some really good reasons that 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 uh, letters like this are hard, and there's some really not good reasons, and um, we have to live with all of them. So it's just a lot of hard work to get it, and no one's ever gotten it as right as they hope that they would. We're certainly in that camp, but. We feel good about this letter. We hope people sign on to it. They can go to say no to Christian nationalism.org, just a website that we started, you know, just all yeah. on our own to try to get as a little consortium of groups to have one place that people could go. They could watch a prayer service that we did for Ash Wednesday. They could read the letter. They could sign on to it. They can hear a reading of the, of the statement. And, and I hope it's a powerful uh, statement trying to take seriously what, what took place and, and try to call us to something better for ourselves, you know? Um, yeah. I'll just read the first paragraph here. It says, as leaders in the broad evangelical community, we recognize and condemn the role Christian nationalism played in the violent, racist, anti-American insurrection at the United States Capitol on, on January 6th. So that is very succinctly calling it out that it's Christian nationalism, racist anti-american insurrection i mean you you're using some big words in on this January letter and 6th. it goes on to say hey this is this is not christianity it is in fact a heretical teaching so th this is this is stabbing right at the heart of of what you're talking about here you know one of the one of the things i've realized in reading the prophets of the old testament and the prophets of the new testament specifically jesus is you name names Right. Yeah. Like we, it's, it's one of the weird things that we get in our world where nobody wants to, the number of meetings I've been in where people are like, well, I'm not going to say who, but so-and-so I'm like, are we in junior high again? Where like you're, you're passing notes around about who you're talking Like, why can't people just say, these are the people, these are the places, this is where it happened. This person did this, like the level to which just in our society and even inside of our Christian communities, we're willing to just be silent about things that we know because of, we're trying to operate under some level of decorum, but it really gives a pass. So we really wanted to name names. So at the bottom of that letter, we say we find you know it incompatible with the Christian faith to be a part of the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters. Like we're naming the groups, and sometimes we name names of religious leaders who have remained silent on these things. I just don't understand why people who want to be truth tellers and want to name, you know, want to name the name of Jesus for their salvation, all of a sudden become all muted when it comes to naming names and places and dates and things that happen and, and wrap it in some kind of generalized, yeah, that didn't go the way we wanted to, right? Or, you know, I didn't love that. Like we thought, and I had a lot to do with writing that first paragraph, I really wanted to name, I thought it was important to say these words, to say them out loud, and then to, and then to get more specific because the struggles we have in our lives, they're about specificity. And this is the thing that every religious tradition that I've been around and all that I know of ask of every religious person, be specific talk, I mean, you meet with a therapist or a spiritual director, they're going to start asking you very specific questions, yeah. right? No one's helped by vague, by vagueness. No one's helped by, you know, a sort of a wink and a nod about, you know what I'm saying, right? Right. Um, like we have to confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts. Like the, this is, this is the problem that we find in our politics, right? It's two sides. It's a problem we find in our faith. It's why political leaders and religious leaders are often covered up for and supported for wrong actions. The number of people that have been cheated, physically, sexually harmed and abused. This stuff goes on and on. People know about it. They don't say anything about it. And I've just become intolerant to this idea that somehow that's the proper approach, right? Um, is, is to, uh, to, to somehow be, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not into call out culture, right? I, right. I'm only into call out if you're going to call in, like, there's no reason to call someone out if you're not going to invite them into a new way of being. It's, it's part of the Christian life, right? It's the thing you do if you're an evangelist, right? You say, join us. Hey, you calling to you is, you know, uh, uh, Zacchaeus up in the tree, you know, I want to come into your house, right? Like I'm, I'm, th this is what we see modeled in the gospels. And there's a reason that these epic stories connect with our lives because we have to call out and we have to call in. 
So I'm not talking about just running around and calling a bunch of people out. But if you're going to name something you thought was important enough to ask the press to pay attention to, the people in your churches to pay attention to, and thousands of people to sign on to, I don't know, I think say it, say it, say it plain, especially when we're dealing with a guy who I think is running a religious and political movement called, you know, named Donald Trump, who uses acts as if he's a straight talker and the guy is anything but a straight talker, yeah. right? It's all, you know, shell games and mirrors in my view. So yeah. we really want, I think we're just in a moment of clarity right now and people have to say things and talk and, and, and talk about what we know and name them. And this seemed like in one that was really possible to do that. And we could, we could get our heads around this one. Wow. I hope you're enjoying this discussion with Doug. Um, and just let me interrupt for a second and tell you the audiobook of my novel, Joseph Comes to Town, is available now via our Patreon page. I told you about it at the start of this podcast, and I did want to tell you about this one feature, the only place you can get the audiobook version of my novel, Joseph Comes to Town, is on our Patreon site at patreon.com slash podcast or going to our podcast website, pastor-paul.com, clicking on the Patreon button there. My novel is all about what would Jesus say if he were in the flesh on earth today? What would he say to the evangelical church? It's a novel that turned out to be everything I wanted it to be, to speak a message to evangelicals that, hey, maybe there's another way to look at God and politics. And if you want to hear it on audio, our Patreon site is the only place you can do it. Patreon.com slash NPE podcast or go to pastor-paul.com. Click on the Patreon button in the upper right hand corner and your financial help to spread this message will mean everything to me and who knows to whom else around the world. So we'll look forward to seeing you on our NPE Patreon page with the Patreon community. Now back to Doug Padgett of Vote Common Good on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast, NPEPodcast.com. We're talking with Doug Padgett, who's the executive director of Vote Common Good. Is it a fair comparison? After 9-11, we demanded our Muslim American friends to denounce that. And them saying, that's not us. That's not the Islamic religion wasn't good enough. And is it fair to say that we should ask the same of Christian churches and maybe particularly evangelical churches today about January 6th? I sure think so. In fact, to every pastor who said after September 11th, where are all the moderate Muslims? Yeah, we're now asking you, where, where are you, right? Are you going to speak up about this? And I don't just mean in a blog post. I don't just mean add your name to a list. Will you stand up in front of your congregation and name this stuff? Will you, will you talk about how Christian nationalism ends up in people's minds? And frankly, Paul, a lot of it comes through private Christian schools and homeschools that use curriculum Oof. that teaches Christian nationalism. Yeah. And you're not going to get to the bottom of this by a pastor that pulls the flag out of the sanctuary on a given Sunday when day after day, the homeschool and Christian school curriculum is pushing a kind of Christian nationalism that wants to talk about slavery and, and the attack on the indigenous peoples of this country in ways that are, that are about, you know, a, a Christian narrative. So there's some stuff we got to get after, right? So yeah, I do think we have to get after it. And the radicalization that's happened in our churches and is happening right now in our churches, we need to get after it because it wasn't just January 6th, right? You look at all of the shootings that we know of that have taken place that had a religious narrative to them. And how many of them have been rooted in Christian nationalism from the, the mass killing in Norway to the, to, the, to the one in New Zealand, to the hundreds of them in the United States? Like we are talking about a long-term white Christian nationalism violent movement that is well known now for January 6th. But man, that is all over the place in the history of this country in the last 50 years. So I think there's a lot to get after. I will say that my friend, uh, Ani Zonneveld, who is uh, uh, the director of a group called Muslims for Progressive Values, uh, based in L.A., but works all over the world. And we're working on an op-ed that's going to come out uh, this week that's going to basically make this very argument that you just said right there. Her and I, her as a Muslim, 
me as an evangelical saying it's time to call the evangelical communities to that which the Muslim community had to be called to um, in its radicalization period of the 90s and early 2000s. So yeah, we're, we're very serious about this and that churches have to have an alternative narrative to teach. Look, I've been a pastor for a long time and I know a lot of pastors. None of them want to talk about Christian nationalism. I didn't want to talk about it. I understand yeah. they don't want to talk about it. They're like, that's not what I want to be. I, I disagree with it. I don't want it to be around my church, of course, but I'm, I'm here to build, build up people's lives and I'm trying to deal with other things. I really don't have time to deal with this. I get it. But you don't have the luxury right now to not deal with it. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, is, um, it is the pandemic of our faith and of our civic life right now. Like there, there's this pandemic also happening to us right now. And this is a particular variant of a virus that has been around this country from its start. But it's different now. And this particular virus is more, more catchy and more deadly than any we've ever had. And we have to respond differently. And I wish we didn't, I wish we didn't have to, I wish we didn't have to talk about this right now. I wish we could just say, of course, there's people that think this was a Christian nation and they're, they joined the military to go fight in the Middle East because they were like defending their Christian faith, even though that's not why they went. We all know that. Like, um, but it's okay if they think that it's no harm, no foul, right? Don't ask, don't tell kind of story. Well, that's never really been the case. It's always been dangerous. And I think it's particularly dangerous now. Well, I think you're, you're poking the bear here for sure. And calling out something that's, that's really important. Um, because I do think this has been growing for decades. I think it, some of it probably came out of the sixties and the cultural overturn and, white Christians starting to think, hey, we're losing control here. And Richard Nixon steps up and talks silent majority law and order, of course, moral majority of the 80s. And then just the culture wars of focus on the family and and all of these different institutions uh, of Christianity. And then you talk about homeschooling and, you know, we have separated ourselves from culture, called ourselves oppressed, declared a culture war maybe this is what it inevitably leads to. We are at war with the culture. I think that's, I think that's a really important thing for us to dive into and talk to in this day and age. Yeah, and if people think that they're foot soldiers in this cultural war, and then the president of the United States calls them to action, they responded. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm afraid to think, I, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm the kind of person that would be violent the way they were. I, I want that to be true about myself. Like I fashioned myself as an intended pacifist, right? Right. Uh, I, I hope if the time ever came out, I, I would pass that test as well. But boy, if I had believed, like if Donald Trump was going to be inaugurated on January 20th, and I believed that he really stole that election, what would I have done? I mean, right. I'm the kind of guy that got on a bus for two and a half years and drove around the country. Like, I think I'm someone who would do unusual things, right? So <laughs> what would I do? I think we all have to ask ourselves that. Like, however you responded after his, his election in 2016, what if you had believed he stole this election? Like somehow, right? I don't know. He got some court. He he called through to some, some uh, government official in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, like he did in Georgia and he, and things changed. And all of a sudden by, you know, one electoral vote, he's it. And you're like, I, it's been stole. What would, what would we do? How, how would we act? Then you baptize this in some sort of Christian narrative. And this gets scary in a hurry. Right. And look, I can tell you what, if people like that support the causes that I support had showed up in Washington, DC for a protest, you think there wouldn't have been National Guard with their guns pointed? I mean, yeah. they brought the National Guard out in Washington, D.C. when Black Lives Matter had a rally there. Right. So you think they would have just been like, well, we thought they were going to be peaceful. How, do, how could we know? Well, because these people are on the terrorist watch list. That's yeah. how, you know, the people for Trump side. So, look, I, I, we're, we're in a powder keg in this country that an election moving one way or the other has been building for an awfully, awfully long time. And when people are so reckless as to say that this election was stolen, that our democracy ceased to function. So now what do you have? And this is what Donald Trump said. I don't want to rang about Donald Trump any longer, but on January 6th, he stood in front of that group and said, when you catch them in a lie, you get to act under very different rules. Yeah. 
And he didn't just say it there. It's not like you're saying like, well, how would anybody in the back of the crowd have heard that? Like he'd been saying that for months. He'd been saying that since July. Yeah. So there's been, there's a movement. And if you, if any of us believe that Donald Trump and all of his organizers and all these people that came and attacked the Capitol, if you think that they thought, well, we're willing to just do that once under a very confined set of circumstances on the day when they're voting to approve the electoral college uh, certification. If you think that's all they're doing, that that's the only time they were going to do it. Uh, I, I, I wish that was true. If, if that's what someone believes, I hope they are right. And I am terribly afraid that they're not. Well, I, I mean, I was a, a, a three hour a day, right wing media Rush Limbaugh listener for years. It took sort of a theological reorganization of my life. And then probably the Iraq war, um, you know, my wife and I started getting quite uncomfortable with this right-wing religion. But like you said, I think we thought it was fairly benign. And then right around 2015 and the election, uh, I, I always tell the story. One day I walked out of my church into the parking lot during uh, one of our services, the church that I was leading. And I saw one of our leading families with their pickup truck there uh, with a bumper sticker that said Huck Fillery on it. <laughs> And I was, it just, I remember just thinking, we think that's okay. Mm -hmm. we, and, they, and the funny thing is they mm -hmm. had, then they had a Christian fish on the bumper, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, we think this is what being Christian looks like. And then of course, QAnon started popping up and I started seeing all this stuff. And we were talking before we came on because one of my friends said, oh, Doug Padgett, I remember him from those emergent church days when people started talking about this kind of different way of doing church. And you and I were chatting before we came on this recording. And you actually believe what you're doing now in Vote Common Good is sort of a continuation of that process of speaking into the church thinking differently. Yeah, if, it, I got into Christianity as a teenager without any Christian background. So I came in pretty naive to everything about the theological side of the story. Like I, I grew up in a family where we didn't have any religion at all. So I didn't even have the kind of cultural religion that other people would, could trust in. Uh, I didn't know Christmas and Easter were religious holidays, like this kind of thing, you know? <laughs> so as a 16 year old, I got into Christianity and immediately was concerned about people who were in the situation like I was like they grew up without knowing any of this. And so I thought a lot about those people in my own faith and was quite active in reaching out to those people. So they would know that there was a story of God and humanity that you see in Jesus. That is a replacement for the violence that people have experienced in our families or have been harmed by others. And that there's an alternative way of healing and an alternative way of life. Right. So this is the gospel that I, I went to a thing called a passion play, which is a Easter time show, you know, right. a, a, a acted story of the last week of Jesus's life. Um, and, and that's what I knew of the gospels, right. It's like Jesus saying, father, forgive them. God's on the side of the oppressed. Uh, they don't know what they're doing. God, stands on the side of the of the harmed and injured one and brings new life right pretty great story somehow that gets turned into you know these other things that are you know having people scream uh to build a wall somehow um but i was always concerned about those people who felt left out because they didn't know the story like i did then i started meeting christian people and started to realize there's something worse than not knowing the story and that's knowing a version of a story that's really not true. Uh, you know, uh, it's, you know, um, there's this old saying, it ain't what you know, that it ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Like that idea that you know something for sure and it's not right, that's the thing that really haunts at you. Um, and that's what a lot, I realized a lot of religious people were experiencing. So I experienced the things I didn't know side, other people experiencing the things they knew for sure that just weren't so. And I spent a lot of time around religious people trying to help all of us, you know, see the things that are plainly there that, as we talked about earlier, are hard to perceive and hard to see. So that's what the emerging church was about, right? Was like, where are the power systems? Where are the places? Could we have a different kind of church life that could lead to a different experience of community and of, of goodness for the world, what we call the benefit and blessing of the world? Could you live a Christianity that isn't about your own power? but it's really about you becoming engaged with the 
with the powerless in the world and, and living life like, like this, right. Sort of in, in that way and trying to figure out a way to do that in the midst of the society we live in, taking very seriously where we live, when we live and how we live and not, you know, desiring to go to a past life. You know, I, Back in the day when we were doing that emerging church stuff, when I was starting a church here in Minneapolis around a lot of church stars, people would talk about wanting to create an Acts 2 church, yeah. which is a reference, you know. And I was like, an Acts 2? Who wants to go back to Acts 2? Like, have you read all the way up to Acts 26, <laughs> Acts 28? Like, <laughs> what? And by the way, how about a 21st century church instead of yeah. a first century church? Like, wouldn't it even be better if we were a now people living in the here and now? So that's always been the, the idea, right? Then you say, well, how do you live in the world in a way that's useful? And so we work on lots of issues and politics became to me one of the issues that needed to be addressed. And frankly, I was watching a lot of Christian people after 2016 just fall in line and fall away and watching people over and over say, well, if 81% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump, then screw them all. Right. And I'm like, I think I'm part of the 19%. And if we could push that to 29%, maybe we don't have this problem, right? So yeah. it felt like the same story of there's people who know things that just ain't so, and there's other people who don't know anything at all. And could we live in a way that could invite those people to engage again? Um, and, you know, sophisticatedly, you call that construction and deconstruction and reconstructionalism of faith and philosoph philosophical systems. And, you know, so that's, that's what, what I've wanted to be about, but it's always been about people. Like it's about how do people live with each other? How do people act in the world? How do people live in a way that's healing and whole and about human flourishing for them and for the planet? That's the point. And anything that doesn't get to that outcome, uh, you're supposed to set aside is what I read mm -hmm. in the teachings of Jesus. And so can our politics be about human flourishing? Well, Sure, better be because if we let our politics be left over to people who, um, you know, seemingly don't care about human flourishing, well, that doesn't make any sense. And if religious oh. people care about human flourishing, then we should pay attention to politics. At least some of us who care enough about it, you know, like yeah. there's a whole set of things in this world I don't care anything about. Sports has become one of those. I used to be a huge sports person. Yep. And like you say, you know, I used to watch a lot of uh, right wing media and listen to a lot of it. And now you don't. I'm like, yeah, somehow I stopped caring about sports. Um, mm. and now I care about politics. Uh, so I think yeah. in a season when someone cares about something, you, you sh people should engage. I think, you know, and, and I have some good Anabaptist friends that say you shouldn't be involved in politics at all. You shouldn't even vote. And I, I respect that. I respect where they're coming from, but it seems to me like government reflects our heart as a culture and as a, as a country, as a state, as a city. And the Bible is all, God's constantly judging that heart of a culture and a community and saying, are you taking care of the poor? Are you taking care of the widows? And so I think it is something that we need to engage in, not in a political manner. My, my wife, who's been involved in government, she always says, God hates politics, but God loves government. Like a government of justice is really important and a government that works for the people. So I think that's why we have to engage and I think the other message that we're telling all these younger generations out there is you're either all in on this right wing white evangelicalism in the white evangelical church, or you're out. And I think our young people are saying, well, if that's the choice, then I'm out. Mm -hmm. And they're saying that in droves. And I think the message that people like you are trying to put out is this is not a zero sum game. You don't have to God is not a Republican necessarily. God is into other things. Uh, so is that part of the message of what you're trying to put out and, and maybe save a couple of generations for the church here? Yeah, it is. And it's, it's also like, look, every generation has to deal with its um, moment. And, you know, as a middle 54 year old, middle-aged white evangelical from the Midwest, that's my moment. That's my time. That's my place. Right. Um, uh, in some ways, I'm not trying to save this for the future generations. I'm trying to get those of us who 30 years ago or 24 years old to finally do our part. Like, mm. I, I don't want to pawn this off on them. And I certainly don't want to act as if um, we don't have work to do. Like those of us, and, and when every 
generation has its time to do its thing. And we all need to be doing our things. And I'll just say, if any of us are going to wait around for the next generation to solve this, just ask people who came of age in the 1960s, if they thought that the, that the world would ever lead to, you know, 40 years later, uh, 50 years later, being faced with this as the outcome of that generation of love, right? It just doesn't, it just doesn't happen that way. We, we have to create th these moments in real time, uh, all of us at every age. And um, yeah, if any way we can join with the 20 year olds and the 90 year olds, we, we should join, everyone should join together. This is going to take all of us and it's going to take all of us for the rest of our life. I mean, I think we realized after four years of this last administration that democracy is fragile. Now, we may not want it at the end of it all. I don't know. Like democracy isn't the only way for human beings to, to organize and thrive in the world, right? Right. It's a, it's a particular political theory that came into being at a time and will likely, you know, morph or change or end at some point. So I'm not ask, acting like it's forever. It's just what we've got right now. You know, right. look, if, if we didn't have a representative form of democracy where individual citizens became politicians and individual citizens voted for the politicians, the people that were going to become their politicians, then sure. I'd argue too, that we should sit out politics, but sitting out politics is just like sitting out your collective participation. So if not you, then who? So mm. if you say, well, I'm going to sit this out. Well, okay. Then somebody else just took that seat, right? Like it's, it's not like, no, it's not like you're turning it over to some other group other than your spouse, your child, your parent, your neighbor, your friend down the street, somebody like somebody else just they're, they're still in. Uh, so it seems to me like, Hey, Hey, do your part. Uh, now should, you know, what, what, what just had a whole conversation on, on another podcast this morning about, you know, we live in a basically a functional two party system, but do we have to only have a two party imagination? Well, I hope not. I hope we haven't split this thing in half. Um, of course, there's a better way. Of course, there's a way that doesn't have this kind of divide to it. And we should try to get there. Yes. But engaging and in my view, you know, being a little blunt and truth telly uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you're that you're against anyone. It means that you're just trying to find it where people are trying to find a way. And I hope we're in the middle of a of a political renaissance. Um, I thought a political renaissance was coming after the election of Barack Obama in 2008. turns out that it may have been after 2016 when the political renaissance happened. Who, would, who saw that one coming? Uh, and who knows what 2030 is going to look like? Um, it just, there's just no guessing here. Um, like we're, we're making this up as we go. And uh, we, we're, we're getting what we're making in this recipe of this country. Well, I think you're doing a good job of reflecting. I think a lot of things had to be revealed of our hearts and and this era has done that for us. And I appreciate the work that you're doing to to lead the way in that. I, I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to talk about your book, Outdoing Jesus. We'll have to have you another time. to talk Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, that stirs up some people's responses when they say, the guy wrote a book called Outdoing Jesus. You can't outdo Jesus. And I like to say, well, Jesus said... Those who believe in me will do the works I'm doing and even greater works than these. So I don't know what you think he was getting after, but I wrote a whole book about what I thought he was getting after. All right, Doug. Great stuff. Appreciate you joining me on the podcast today and keep up the good work, man. Thank you.